So why crypto? So why crypto? So why crypto? Featuring Vishal and Quay. Welcome to another edition of So Why Crypto, a podcast where we look at crypto as a technology. This is Vishal. My name is Quay. And in this episode, we're going to discuss fiat versus crypto. And why should we understand it? Why do we need to understand this so it is in the crypto discussion? So before we compare fiat versus crypto, we got to do something. We got to get real clear on this. And the first question, Vishal, are you ready to dive in right now? Let's do it. Okay. So so first question is, so what is money? That's a good question. I think it's a fundamental question because fiat and crypto is a form of money. I don't want to take this as an obvious thing because that's what it does. So let's look at what money is. So money is something that allows people to exchange value with each other. I want you to do this thought experiment in, let's say we live in a society where there's only three needs people have, and those are cooking, cleaning, and clothes. Okay, so if that's all we're doing, let's assume that the value of our time, so one hour of cooking and clothes building and cleaning is the same, uh, then we could be just doing chores for each other and uh, have a spreadsheet a big giant spreadsheet in the society saying, okay, this person's done this much cleaning, clothing, this and that. So we're just exchanging that stuff. And what ended up happening is we have a lot more things. So money allows us to specialize. So we're doing this podcast. There's somebody making YouTube videos. There's somebody who's making the Uber app work for you. There's all these different things. Somebody's writing a book. The society is allowed to do all these specialization. Now the spreadsheet gets very complex. So instead of having the spreadsheet, we have these tokens we call them money. Okay. Now, throughout the civilization, we've had money in any kind of society that has more than a few hundred people living in it, needed some money, so people could go and specialize it. One thing I will say that historically, it has allowed, money has allowed people to specialize. And the modern economy, what it does is actually, it helps humans to grow the economy so grow the pie itself. So this is a, a two way of looking at it. One is how Vashal or Quay is taken care of by themselves. Then how society at large, a state of California or the U.S. or whatever the country might be, how they are taken care of with society as whole. Are they able to solve some problems using the mechanism as a money? And there are three main functions of money. Okay. So the first one is store of value, the second one is unit of account, and then we have medium exchange. So let me give you a concrete example. So let's say you build hammers, and you sell me hammer for $5, right? So we're using, I'll give you $5, you use that money as a store of value for future use, whatever you might need for your food, your home. Hopefully you sell a bunch of hammers and you make a living doing that. That's what you specialize in. And then a unit of account, we use it as when you tell me the hammer is $5, we both know what the $5 mean. That is what we're using the unit of account as a function. And the medium exchange is where we're exchanging. I'm giving you the $5, you give me the hammer. And then you're doing it to other people too. So that hopefully that explains the three functions of money on a very fundamental level, how important it is to any society. Okay. Um, 
No, and it totally makes sense. And so now that we discuss money and we understand the three functions of money, I think we should peel a little bit more. And the question that I have for you, are there different forms of money? Yeah, so we, we earlier said, so cryptocurrency is a form of money, and then you got fiat currencies of money. So let me give you a few examples. So commodity money is the one that we have been using for the longest time as humanity has been around. So gold and silver has been really commonly used. Typically, it has a fixed supply or it's, it costs a lot of money to mine gold and silver. So the supply of gold or silver doesn't really increase that much. So that has worked really well throughout history to be used as money, a form of money. Then we get fiat money, which is a money that is issued by a government. That's essentially trust in your government, in your country's government. And that is not fixed supply, so that's a variable supply. So we'll talk a little bit more about it. The supply of money changes depending on how the government manages it. And then there's another form is cryptocurrencies. So cryptocurrencies typically is a fixed supply. And if you look at the most common one is Bitcoin. There'll ever be 21 million minted Bitcoins ever. So we have somewhere around 18 and some change million Bitcoins already minted and the rest are going to be minted in the next few years. And, uh, and that tells you it's a fixed supply, how much is coming in. It's very close to the commodity money. It's fixed, but there is some new, uh, new supplies coming in. And then if you look at some other uh, cryptocurrencies like Ethereum and Solana, there isn't really a, a cap to how much, how much they have. But they have some algorithm how they figure it out. So yeah, so these are the three common ones if you understand. And there's more types of money that that's out there that we'll talk about a little bit more throughout this episode. Okay. So Vishal, like whenever I'm doing research and understanding money and functions and the conversation and what I hear about is legal tender. Can you give me a little more clarity on legal tender because I don't quite understand it? Yeah. So legal tender is basically is when a government allows a currency to be used within the country. Okay. So, for example, the U.S. has a U.S. dollar as a legal tender. In Europe, a lot of the countries together have a euro. And Japan has yen. And you got China has yuan. So that's their legal tender. So depending on the country, they will have the legal tender. Also, some countries that have U.S. dollar as a legal tender as well. So El Salvador, for example, have had a U.S. dollar as a legal tender since 2001. And they actually don't have their own, they have their own currency, but it's really not, it's really tied to the U.S. dollar. So really their, their legal currency is a U.S. dollar. And uh, just recently, they actually also made Bitcoin legal tender as well. So it's as a, as a part of an experiment, it seems. And one of the things with the legal tender is if you are a creditor in the country and within a jurisdiction, let's say the U.S., so they need to accept the legal tender, whatever the currency is. So U.S. dollar, if somebody gives you a loan, let's say a bank or a person, the creditor needs to actually take the legal tender as a repayment of it. So, for example, in El Salvador, you should also, you're allowed to pay back your debt. And they also allow for you to buy anything with Bitcoin as well. So that's what the legal tender does, which is something that government approves. 
Gotcha. Okay. Yeah. So then again, in, in the research and what I see out there in the World Wide Web is currency and money. I see it used interchangeably. Can you give a little bit more clarity in that? Yeah, absolutely. So <clears throat> money, the way to think of it, money is like a category. The way you would say dog is a category. Then you have in the dogs, you have German Shepherd, you got Chihuahuas, you got all these different dogs within it. And they're all are different. They do, they do different jobs. German Shepherd probably would be better for you to actually have protect your home rather than the Chihuahua. So anyhow, so it's the same thing. So it's more of a category. So think of money as a category. And within the money, then you have different forms. So you got, uh, uh, you got currency, like the fiat currency we talked about. You got cryptocurrency. You have a commodity like gold and silver. That's also is considered money. Then you got art. You got bonds. You got a lot of different things that are actually go inside the money. A pack of cigarettes would be money if you're in a prison. Um, so anyway, so, so currency, again, going back to the currency is more so used by uh, within a jurisdiction, but the money as a whole, you can store your value into gold in any country you want. And uh, the government can't really do much about that. But as far as the currency that you're using there, the government has control over that. Gotcha. Um, so, so those are two different things. So categories of money, currency is a type of money. I wanted to understand gold standard. We've had many of conversations about this. I know that you explained it in a certain way. So most of the world used to use gold standard. Why are they not now? What is the problem? Why is it not working? Yeah. So 1971, U.S. started using what we call the fiat standard, right? The government issue money that's not backed by any commodity like gold and silver. Gold standard is the opposite. So actually, the papers that were issued are backed by gold or silver. So you can actually go to the bank and say, hey, I have this $100 bill. I want this to be converted into to gold. And they would give you that. So 1971, the U.S. decided that, hey, modern economy doesn't work that way. We actually don't want to have the gold standard anymore. And soon the whole world basically switched over to it. There's about approximately 200 countries today in the world <clears throat> that are considered countries, and about 160 of them use their own fiat currency. So it became the standard right after 1971. But your question is gold standard. So we explain what is it, why we stop using it. So <clears throat> in the modern economy, one of the ways to look at it is in the sense of supply and demand, simple economics. So as the economy grows, and, uh, and then the gold supply does, which it has been rapidly in the last 40 years or so, <clears throat> and the gold will be more valuable and the prices will fall. And then if the gold supply gets really uh, go faster than the GDP, then the opposite would happen. And then the gold will be less valuable and the prices will increase. So on the fundamental level, to grow the economy with the gold standard became more and more difficult. And this is where the leading economists in the U.S. have been talking about it. And this, is, this has been talked about since World War I, World War II, that we should go off the gold standard. There are some countries in the U.K. who, <clears throat> for example, U.K. Churchill actually tried going back on the gold standard. And it was like a, it was like a 
disaster. When Churchill later recalled this, he called that as one of his uh, his biggest failures. Wow. <clears throat> so anyway, that's one of the things that gold standard it just doesn't work for the modern economy. We're connected to the whole world. And then the second thing is, if you have a competent government that act, that can actually run the economy, how the money supply is controlled, then you actually have all the advantages of gold, but you don't have the drawbacks. So let's imagine if a country has to go to a war or a pandemic happens, something unforeseen happened. How does the government fund these things? So it gives you this mechanism with a fiat currency that gold standard couldn't do before. That's why the whole world basically went away from. So there's actually no country, there's no major economy or even worth mentioning economy still use commodity money anymore as far as having a gold standard. And then the third thing I would mention is, there's a lot of things we could talk about why it doesn't work, is, is most of the unmined gold is in China, Russia, and South Africa. So those countries would have a really competitive advantage of mining that gold and uh, having this competitive advantage because where they happen to be, right? Now, <clears throat> if you look at the oil, so you have some countries who have oil, that has a lot more practical use because we, are, we need it to fuel our needs, of human needs. Gold doesn't really have a lot of practical use outside of wearing it. I know we use some of that in the medical equipment or whatnot, but for the most part, it really is to store a value. So over time, it began to fail. It still has a $12 trillion market cap. People use it as a store of value and has worked and probably will be there for forever or for as far as we probably live. And anyhow, so gold standard... It fails as a backing of the major economies, how you run the country. That's where the fiat actually really excels. And that's how you run the modern economies today. It just seems like it's a complex issue because it seems like it's by backing fiat, it makes sense. But then I completely understand that. And so when you there's people that are specialists out there that do this, economists. I'm sure they have done some deep dive and research into this. What are they saying? What are the economists saying about the gold standard? Yeah, so one of the things, University of Chicago has a boot business school. Yep. Really Famous. reputable. Yep, some of them considered to be the best business school in the U.S. So they do a survey annually of economists, lead economists. A few years ago, they did this they had these 40 lead economists and they said, talk about, can, should the U.S. go back on gold standard? That was a question. And uh, these economists don't agree on many things, but this one thing they agreed on. So out of the 40, basically zero said we should go back on gold standard. It's a modern economy, can't work on it. So uh, a lot of the experts who have a PhD who actually knows everything inside and out of how economies work, they all disagree that we can't go back on gold standards. I hope that tells you what the experts think of it. Yeah. The experts say we do not do this and we keep moving on. So then I got a question more because this is what I've heard about gold, that it has an annual inflation of about 2%. Is that right? Yeah. So the way, uh, <clears throat> let's define inflation, right? So inflation is when there's an increase in prices in the economy. 
and then deflation is the opposite when there's a decrease in it. If you talk to economists, actually, they will say deflation is one of the worst things that could happen to an economy. Japan had about 20-year span of deflation. So think of deflation as you have a business. Let's say you run a grocery store, and deflation is saying that things are getting cheaper. So if things are getting cheaper, then you as a business owner, can't pay your employee as much. So the wages are getting lower and lower. And this actually, when you think about it more on individual level or society level, deflation is actually really bad for you. One of the presidents who actually ran in Japan, he said he's going to fight deflation and he did. They ended up printing a lot of money. So deflation could be really, really bad for the economy and it was for Japan. Now, inflation... There is, uh, there is ideal inflation, and then there is hyperinflation. So if you look at countries like Venezuela, Argentina, Zimbabwe, they've had really hyperinflation. Part of that was because their, uh, their government really mismanaged their supply of the money, mm-hmm. um, and people lost trust in the government, and they wanted to exit it, get the U.S. dollars or whatever they thought was more uh, valuable. So that's a hyperinflation. So inflation, so 2% inflation of the gold, what you're talking about is, so if you go back, you can go back a few decades, and there's about 2% supply of new gold that comes in to the world. So it, it takes a lot of effort, machinery, people, skills to mine new gold. And it's about 2% supply goes up. So that's what people talk about. The inflation of gold is about 2% a year. So 2% supply increases each year. And here's a thought experiment on gold. I know we're talking about it. So scientists have discovered an asteroid that has actually more gold than we have on the Earth, right? That at least we know how much we have on, on the Earth. So... Let's say if SpaceX or some some company figures out how to go to the asteroid and mine the gold and bring it back to the Earth, that would actually really increase the inflation of gold, how much we can mine, right? Also, technology is going to improve over time, so the mining maybe go from 2% to some, some could be 10%. Mm-hmm. Gold and technological advancement, the inflation might move over time. That's worth mentioning, the supply of gold, anything, supply and demand is really important to understand. Yeah. Right. So, and just so I wanted to think of this visually for myself. Yep. Is inflation deflation like a roller coaster? And that you have your ups and downs through society, through the economy of inflation and deflation? Or is it more of... You know, inflation going up a lot and the government does what it needs to do to bring it down. But it's just always, are we always countering, basically? Is the government always countering inflation and deflation? Yeah. So if you go back to 1971, central banks were created. But they've been created for about 100 years now. Mm-hmm. Uh, the U.S. created about 100 years ago. Europe has it. Now, all developing countries, or most of the countries have their own central bank. So the central bank's main job is to control inflation. 
right? <clears throat> and they all have agreed that between 2 to 3% annual inflation is healthy. The way to look at it, that in the sense of if you, if somebody borrows money to buy a 30-year mortgage for a house, mm-hmm. you as a lender, as a bank or a person who are lending it, wants to make sure the inflation is stable over time. So let's say you pay 5% interest and the inflation is 2 to 3%. You as a person who's getting the money, the, the debtor, is going to know, okay, I know there's going to be inflation 2 to 3%. Instead of 5%, I'm paying minus 2 or 3%, right? And if you're lending, that's actually even more important because what if the inflation goes 50%, 100%? Now your money is worth way less. Mm-hmm. So controlling inflation within the country is really a key role. That's why we're talking about Venezuela, Argentina, and Zimbabwe. They have failed. Their governments don't have competent people or they are corrupt and whatnot. And then if you go back to the U.S., if you look back about 30 years or so back, it's about 2.5% inflation per year. Mm-hmm. It's a very complicated ma- ma- matrix how you measure it. Some people will say it's more than that. Some people less than that. It's right around 2.5%. That's what most of the experts who actually do this for a living will agree on. And between 2 and 3% is considered by most economists to be a healthy number. We talk about deflation not being a good thing. Again, if you go back to lending, a lot of the modern world is depending on debt, being able to go to college, being able to buy a car or a house or start a business. Debt is really helpful for you, for a capable person to want to achieve their goals. So the government job is, the central bank job is to control the inflation. So they control it. They have many, many different tools in their hand. One of the main one is how much the cost of lending is, the interest rate. So they can actually slow down the economy or speed up the economy by going the lending rate, the federal lending rate go to all the way to zero or right now it's 5% or so. And they can change the money supply. There's, There's many different policies the government can do. A competent government knows how to handle it. And one of the things if somebody's listening and they hear a lot of narrative about inflation, you want to look at a larger window. So you want to look at 10 years, five years, instead of you can get fooled by a small sample of a month or two months or three months. That's what the narrative you'll see a lot of time people are talking about. So look at a larger window and also look at the larger bucket of things in inflation. So you can get fooled by just looking at gas prices. Because that could have an impact on a war in Russia and Ukraine-Russia war or some monetary policy within the country with a country, economic policy or different policies where they're like, we don't want a lot of supply. We don't want people to use a lot of gas, uh, electricity. Then they will tax it more or make it more costly. So look at a bucket of things that will give you a better sense of what the inflation is in the country or deflation. So a lot of the data is is available, but you should definitely look at a larger window and a larger bucket of things. Right. It's easy to get fooled by just looking at a small, small amount of one thing or two things. Oh man, the shirt used to be this much as now, this much. I can make the same case for deflation as well. Like 
The televisions are much more cheaper than they used to be. Your clothes are much more cheaper than they used to be. So a lot of things, I can make that case too. But then again, you want to look at the big pocket to understand how the inflation deflation work. The way it's tracked in the U.S., when I read up, it's very complicated. And it's hard to get it exactly right, but you can get the ballpark figure. Yeah. Thank you for talking about that as the narrative, right? Because I, you would think that this is just something to focus on these days or, you know, the narrative is brings in politics and this is why this is happening and this is why this is happening. But truly, when you do the research and like you said, look at the broader scope of things, inflation is always happening. Maybe it gets a little bit higher on, in certain years or in certain quarters and periods, but it's always happening. And so thank you for explaining that a little bit more of understanding that you got to look at the bigger picture than just a small sample size of things. So I think that makes so much sense. So, OK, we talked about money in general, gold standard inflation. So let's talk about the big question. Which form of money is best? Is crypto better than fiat or is fiat better than crypto? Yeah, that's a big question. So <clears throat> this is part of why we started this podcast, right? Why crypto? Let's understand it. <clears throat> and this is something we've been doing, having guests and doing our own research and talking about it in a very objective way. So let's look back. So we talk about money as a tool, right? It lets you transfer value from one person to another. And then tools can be evaluated based on what job they're doing, right? What job are they designed to do? So let's look at a hammer. So there are different types of hammer, just like the way different types of money. So you have the claw hammer, you have the sledge hammer, you got rubber hammer, you got a bunch of different type of hammers. And, uh, and if you have, let's say, a job to bring down a wall, you won't use a claw hammer or a rubber hammer, you would use a sledge hammer. And if you need to take the nails out that you put in, you would use a claw hammer, right? So every job, depending on what you're trying to do, that's a tool you would need. So the same for money. We talked about the different type of monies. Every economy is different. You have, for example, you have the U.S. economy. So U.S. economy, it thinks about individual who can exchange value with one another and they can specialize in that case. And then also, then you have the overall economy that you have to manage, right? So you want to make sure unemployment on the overall level needs to be controlled. That's another thing that the central bank does. So we talked about earlier, does control inflation and also unemployment. That's, that's the U.S. central bank, right? So depending on the government, you have different things. And then the U.S. is big in the lending space as well. So it wants people to own property, start businesses, go to college. So that's the job that the U.S. government does, right? Locally, it would be different. So if you look at somebody like El Salvador, then you got El Salvador who don't have their own currency. They use U.S. currency. This is part of the mechanism they used a while back, 2001, to increase their, uh, their ability to do business with the world, economic development, and they use the U.S. dollar. And then... Just recently, they started using Bitcoin as another goal to, for them to attract people from coming from all over the world to do business. They just pass a law where anything technological you're doing within El Salvador, you won't pay any taxes on it. 
So it's just a mechanism of a country, what they're trying to do. So again, every country will use a tool based on it. Now, we talked about earlier, there are 200 different countries, there's about 160 different type of fiats out there, and all fiats are not the same, all central banks are different. We use the U.S. because it just happens to be the most dominant fiat currency in the world. Okay. Yeah. lot to soak in there. When you think about this, of again, why we have these conversations for you to want understand, do some research. So in understanding all that, so what are examples of goals for the economy, for different economies, but focusing on the U.S. economy? Like, what are the goals? Yeah, so we briefly touch up on that. So the U.S. says our inflation goal is 2% annual growth. So mm-hmm. I said last 30 years, if you go back, it's about 2.5%. If you go back all the way when fiat was uh, was introduced in 1971, it's around 3.5%, 4%, something around there. That's the hard target to hit. That's where a lot of economies fail. The U.S. Done, has done a pretty good job. And also keeping the unemployment low. So as the credit that the government control, the interest rate gets cheaper or expensive, people will start businesses, hire more people. So they control those two main things. Mm-hmm. And then we also have the lending part of it, which a lot of that is where they use the current banking system to lend money out and just, just to flourish the economy. So that's the U.S. government that does that has its own goals and things they want to do. And then we talked about El Salvador has different goals. They want to grow their economy. They want to encourage people from outside the country to come in and do entrepreneurship, which U.S. does too. Mm-hmm. But it's different, right? So U.S. actually attracts a lot of people because of education. People go to Harvard, Yale, whatever, Ivy League or Stanford. And then the U.S. wants to keep them there, right? So you need to actually have some mechanism and control where people want to stay there. So Elon Musk, for example, wasn't born in the U.S., came and stayed there, started some world-class businesses there. So El Salvador wants to do something similar, so they're going to use different mechanisms because they don't have world-class education there. So different goals. When you think about other countries, U.S. is focused on keeping inflation down and unemployment, keeping that in a range. You would think that, and this probably comes back to competent and incompetent government, you would think that would be everybody's goal or a big majority of the world to make sure that's in check. Do you know of other goals that some maybe other governments have or don't have or pretty much everybody in that thing? Yeah, totally. So we could talk a little bit about Japan and China. We talked about Japan had 20 years of of deflation, right? which means that the wages are going down. It doesn't look good for the economy. So they begin to do was they begin to print more money to actually have inflation to 2 to 3%. They've been actually doing more printing than any other country. If you look at how much money U.S. prints, China, Europe, Japan is higher. And this is part of that is they're, they're controlling the, the deflation. So that's their central bank's role is to have the healthy inflation of 2 to 3% that we've been talking about. Right. And then if you look at China, that's quite different. So China is one of those success stories that the country was one of the poorest in the world. 
in the last 20, 25 years. Now they're the second largest GDP. Part of that, what they've been able to do is they've been able to actually own a lot of treasuries, U.S. treasuries, U.S. bonds. And what that does is that mechanism for the government, it doesn't increase their labor cost within China. When you own a lot of U.S. dollar, that means your supply of yuan is less. Again, it's a pretty complicated thing how they've been able to achieve it. So essentially what they've been able to do is their labor stayed cheap. So the whole world began to, pretty much the whole world, been, been exporting stuff from China. Right. And that's how they've been able to grow their economy to the second largest in the world. And now they actually, the playbook really opens up, right? Because now they're the second largest economy. They can actually invest in education. A lot of the Chinese are buying property all over the world. You could do a lot of different things once you have the GDP up. So the Chinese government, again, has different goals. Right? So we talk about Japan, China, El Salvador, and then you got U.S. Different goals because you got different people, population sizes are different. You have different resources locally. You have many, many different things where you are geographically, how are people, how competent the people are, <laughs> and even running the economy, right? So that's one of the things that we should highlight is People who are running the economy, people who are deciding within the central bank is really essential. That Are they getting the job done within domestic government, keeping in mind that they are connected to the whole world now? So it's a really complicated layer of things. And I want to highlight it saying it is complex. You can't just say, hey, let's go back to gold standard and everything will be fixed because everything is now at a fixed supply. It's much more complicated than that. Yeah, you would think the fact that China did it within our lifetime is pretty amazing. To go to second is quite amazing to see. So for you, get a chance, research, do a little information, check it out for yourself. So we understand money is a tool. And now you do, that you understand that, it demystifies it and takes away the veil. And so... I wanted to ask you, what distinguishes fiat from crypto? Yeah, so I think that's a good question. So <clears throat> one of the ways to look at it is how do you engineer something, right? So a tool is engineered to do get a job done, right? So let's look at a single family home versus building like a stadium where 100,000 people go watch a football game, okay? So... The engineer would have different goals in mind. Single family home, they would need to make sure they have X number of bedrooms or two bathrooms and stairs and certain things that the home needs, some storage place. Now, if you're building a stadium for 100,000 people to being able to come in and out, you as an engineer need to also keep in mind what if in case of emergency, what do we do? So one of the things they do is they don't build, they don't have stairs, they'll have ramp. So a lot of people are going up or down. So if there was a fire or an earthquake or some kind of emergency was to happen, they can actually leave. This is an engineering thing because depending on what job you're trying to do, you need to design things the same way. Just to give you a concrete example about 9-11, one of the things that engineers looked at, uh, the postmortem of the World, World Trade Center after 9-11 attack, 
there were just a few inches that the stairs to exit, if they were a few inches wider, like multiple people would be able to go down mm-hmm. versus only it could go down in one line and ended up having a lot of casualty because of that. So that was an engineering fail that we have learned since then. Hey, that's an important thing to do. So my point being, depend what kind of job you're trying to get done. Okay. okay. So now going back to distinguish between different types of money. So if you're trying to get something done for individuals where they can exchange value with each other, many different types of money can work. So you got the fiat money that works well. Then you got gold, gold standard that worked well as well. And then you got crypto as well, right? So those uh, gold and crypto being more on the fixed side and then you got a fiat more on the variable side. Now, the second thing that worth considering is the collective society. What the US, China, we have talked about Japan, and Euro does the same thing where Euro is a bucket of countries that do the same, use the same currency. As a collective society, they're trying to accomplish something. And that variability where you can actually increase the money supply, they also decrease the money supply. So if you could that, that actually is very helpful for, for, for an economy at large. So now you have the individual as an engineering, what needs to get done. Then you have the collective, what needs to be done collectively as a society. I think that's an engineering thing. I think that's where it's very different to look at. Once you, once you look at it, it's like, okay, individual need versus a collective need. You need to, can you check both of the boxes or can you just check one box? So I think uh, this is where fiat actually really flourishes is because it's able to do the collective and the individual and the gold standard fail there because it couldn't really scale as uh, we got 8 billion people and economies grow. And uh, also I think crypto is going to have some issues there because it does have a fixed supply. Let me give you a concrete example. Let's say you're going to go travel to Mexico, okay? <clears throat> and uh, you go to Mexico, and a month before you exchange $1,000 into pesos, right? You get a 20 pesos to, to a dollar exchange rate. So right. you're, you're happy, you're like, all right, I got that. You got the money. A month later, you show up to Mexico, and then you see all of a sudden that the, that the exchange rate has gone down to 18 pesos, right? So it's about so it's 10% difference. Now, if a novice just looks at it and they say, oh, wow, this is really good for the Mexicans, because now if they have pesos they want to convert into U.S. dollar, they can actually get 10% more. Mm-hmm. They're thinking at a very individual level, right? We talked about the individual level earlier. They're just thinking, oh, it's good for Quay, it's good for Vishal, it's good for whoever. Now, if you look at the collective sense as a whole market in Mexico, it's it's a much more difficult thing for the country. So just to give you an example, Tesla just announced that they're going to have the Giga factory in Mexico. So that's going to employ a lot of Mexicans. Now, if you think about that, Tesla have their money in the U.S. dollar. Now, all of a sudden, that goes 10% less when they convert over to Mexico. And the impact on Mexico employment is going to be big. And this is just one of the things that happens now if somebody wants to buy a property in Mexico, also 10% less. So as a collective, 
if you own a property, you own a bunch of properties, you want to have as many bidders as you can. So now less US money is coming in, your price is going lower. So it gets very complicated when you look at on the whole society level, right? On the collective level in Mexico. So what the fiat currency does for the Mexican government is they can do three things here. They can actually do nothing. So let's say the peso stays around 18 pesos. They can actually shrink the supply. They can even get stronger. Now the foreign investment is going to get come in less. Your employment goes less, right? Because labor is cheaper in Mexico versus the U.S., right? So you have to know what the country is doing. And then the third component is they can actually print more money. With that money, they can actually fund some things like infrastructure or education or health, whatever they need to. So the government has all these mechanisms on their hand versus if they couldn't do anything, this 18 could go down to 16, 15, 14. You would think, oh, the Mexicans are happy. Actually, yeah, if you don't hold the money, then it's actually not a good thing for you. That's why the U.S. companies want to go to Mexico rather than going to Canada because the currency exchange is way different than it would be in Mexico. So I wanted to display that the, that when you look at, at a collective, it gets very complicated. It's easier to say individual-wise, but when you look at collectively, it's a, it's a much more complex issue. Wow, yeah. Because I read that article also about uh, Tesla coming to Mexico, and I thought the same thing. Oh, man, that's great, but then... You're only looking at a small piece. There's a bigger conversation to have. And so that's very interesting. So it sounds like what I'm hearing is that there are, and we mentioned, you mentioned this, I mentioned this, that governments can be incompetent and some can be competent. And so there's not a one size fits all solution to everything. It's just, it's complex. Yeah, totally. I would say that's exactly what it is. And one of the way to also look at this thing as uh, how we, we talked about inflation, right? So the country's job is to keep inflation between 2 to 3%. A competent government can actually achieve that. Incompetent government will not be able to achieve it. So let's say you can achieve it. Now, let's say you're writing a long-term contract to buy a home or a business or a car or go to college. You want to be able to get some kind of lending, right? So you can get lending, a long contract. If the inflation is somewhat stable, 2 to 3%, a person, a bank or a creditor would be happy to give, give money to somebody where they know there's going to be some inflation. So you as a debtor are happy. And the creditor know that's predictable. Mm-hmm. And if you have a really you know, wonky inflation or deflation, then a creditor doesn't want to give money out. So one of the things you can look at in Latin America, lending is much more expensive and it's much more harder to actually get lending because the government or the people who are lending it knows the historically the inflation has been really, really fluctuating, right? So Mexico has had the, we talked about Venezuela, Argentina, Many, many countries have had really up and down issues with inflation. So lending becomes really difficult. So this is where the competent government comes in who can actually control the lever, seeing where that goes. And a lot of that is actually come down to 
people believing in the government, can they actually get this done? Right. And I think uh, for now, currently people are voting with their money that the U.S. government is the most competent because 60% of all the foreign exchange happened through the U.S. dollar. So that's where the competence and incompetence is really important for people to understand that. Yeah. So is 2 to 3% inflation good? Is, it, is that like the, I don't want to say the marker, but like the marker that most people are looking at? Everyone is looking at the U.S. to say, Okay, they're doing it at this level, at this rate, at 2 to 3%. We need to try. <laughs> I know for some people it's hard, but they try. Yeah, this is something the leading economists all over the world, not just the U.S., to say 2 to 3%. So U.S. says 2%, Europe says 3%. Different countries have different inflation rate they're looking for. So I mentioned earlier, U.S. for the last 30 years, if you look at that window, it's 2.5%, 2.49 or something like that. That has been the inflation Again, you got to look at a longer window period and a bigger basket of things, not just gas or one single thing. That's where you make a very hasty generalization and saying, oh, look at this. And you're making your case for, for a very small sample right. on a really complex, big picture thing. Since we're talking about the ideal inflation and lending, can we talk about debt and fiat? Is that a good thing or a bad thing? Let me ask a few questions to see if a debt is a good thing or not. Nothing. These are rhetorical questions. So don't answer them. <laughs> Let's say you're an intelligent person and you're ambitious. You want to be a doctor. You want to be a cardiologist. But you don't have money, right? Your parents or you personally don't have money to go to college. And let's say the government doesn't provide you the means to go to college. So what do you do at that point? You use debt. So you can go to a, another person, you can go to the bank, you can go to the government, a federal loan, right? So the mechanism of debt is actually really helpful, so depending on who you ask. So this is, for that person, would be really good that they can actually leverage the debt to become a doctor because they have the ability, drive, wanting to do it, and, and the society will pay a cardiologist a lot of money later down the line when they're 30, 32, when they're ready to be a full-time doctor. And you look at another person who's like a really motivated, capable person, has a great idea, wants to start a business. Again, they don't have any money. How do they go? They go raise money through debt. That's another one of those things that you can do. Then let's say you are a person who's really hardworking, you have a family, and every day you commute four hours in a public transportation to go to work. And if you could actually get your own car or motorcycle or whatever, you can go from point A to point B for your work in one hour. So now you take three hours off. You can actually go to a bank or you can go to somebody and actually get a loan where you can get a car. And this happens to people. But you don't have enough money, right? So then you can actually like, look, I have an income, I have this. So it's a system in the debt place for you to being able to leverage the system, being able to to get what you want in this case you got a car or a motorcycle you got education or start a business or buy a home so all these different things that you could do i should also point out that the inflation is good for the debtor so if you are buying a home a two to three percent inflation is actually good for you even more is good for you because now you got the money let's say a hundred thousand dollars and if it's 2 to 3% over 30 years, they're actually doing pretty good. 
Now, if it's 10% a year, you're actually doing even better. Who's not doing better is the person who actually gives you the money, right? Their value is less. This sounds pretty counterintuitive once you understand the inflation part of it, 2 to 3% is healthy, and you look at different angles, you're like, oh, that makes a lot of sense how the world goes around. <clears throat> also, can banks be predatory? Absolutely. Mm -hmm. Can there be people who are still in student debt and they're ready to be retired in their 60s? Yeah, that could happen. Uh, part of that is somebody lend them at a really high rate or they got a degree in something that they couldn't get employed. They ended right. up not making a lot of money. So that could happen. It's not all great. So there are pros and cons. So depending on who you ask, I think net positive... The debt actually helps you you get out of this cycle of where you're staying, where you actually have the ability, but you can't do something. There's one of the platform, Kiva, that I use. I lend some money out. So there'll be a farmer in Kenya who's looking for $400 to buy some equipment for his farm. And I will lend the money out, and then that person pays me back over time. Or... I've had another person somewhere in Africa who's going to college. They're looking for just $200, and I put $200, somebody else puts $200, they're able to go get education, become a doctor. Now they're actually a local doctor, and they pay the money back. And anyhow, so there's a mechanism where you can actually leverage debt to acquire a skill that society wants. So, yeah, depending on how people look at it. Yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. So, again, it's a complex thing. If you look at it, many use cases in a grand scale where you actually have a government who can actually have laws in place to protect. And this is always a moving target. Right? The bankers are always looking to manipulate the system and the government needs to come and say, no, nope, you can't do this. And uh, so anyhow, so yeah, it's a complex thing. And I think that is a good thing where people can actually leverage it. Again, with healthy inflation over time. Yeah. And, and yeah, just what you're saying, it depends on how you look at it. And this is what I think we've been saying the whole season is to make sure that you do the research on your own and make sure you look into it because debt can work for you, but you have to make sure the things that you're going to use that debt for are going to come back and pay back what you eventually took that out for. And I think that's the very important part. And we are no financial advising podcast at all. So we're just here having a conversation. So credit debt is the backbone of the modern economy if it's done right for the collective and not the individual. Would you say that's correct? I think you can say for both, okay. for collective and the individual. Again, this, is, this comes down to how... It's the, the law is applied, right? How people are protected mm -hmm. from predators and whatnot. So just to illustrate that how important debt is to society, the largest market cap, this is from as of 2021, is the real estate is about $326 trillion. So a lot of the real estate, commercial or your residential, a lot of that is because of debt, mm -hmm. right? So you're able to actually go leverage the debt over time. And then you got the bonds, about $124 trillion. Then you got equities, about $109 trillion. And then you have some more of a fixed supply stuff like gold is about $12 trillion. Crypto is about $1 trillion in 2023. This is the only one I updated now. I think gold is around, uh, around $15 trillion or something like that. It has gone up. So you can look at it like how the debt can actually 
as you, if you look at the whole global, how important it is when you look, start looking at these asset classes. And we looked at individual, then we look at how ind- individual can leverage the debt. So a lot of the system is built for modern economy to grow. And again, there's going to be players who's going to trying to trying to find holes in it. And this is where the government comes in, a competent government who can make sure it's run properly. So what do you think about the future of fiat? The future of fiat, so there are many different fiat currencies, right? So depending on what country, how competent it is to run it, it also depends on what type of trust the society itself, so let's say the U.S., the euro, have in it, and then how the world sees it as well, right? So uh, the world right now is saying U.S. is the number one fiat currency in the world. Uh, will it always be the case? Who knows? Right. It all depends on how people vote with their money, right? Like, hey, this is who we trust in. This is who we don't trust in. So I think... It just really depends on the competence of government, how they can actually control the inflation by using the money supply up or down. And then there are going to be some governments going to, to use different technologies than fiat, like crypto. And we'll see how that pan out. I know El Salvador is doing it. A couple of countries in Africa are trying this as well. And these are really small economies, I should point out. El Salvador is the smallest country in... All Central America. So it's not as complex as, let's say, something like Argentina or Brazil or Mexico or Canada or US or something like that in the American continent. But it's going to be an interesting thing what kind of market cap you could take away from, from fiat because it is, cryptocurrency is based on code and uh, relatively fix supply right uh, but it doesn't give government much as far as economic policy goes so then the same question then for you as said it for fiat so what do you think about the future of crypto i think crypto is interesting when i started looking into crypto i really thought that one of the properties that money needs to have is scarcity this is historically has happened which is the number one thing you hear against fiat now that it's not scarce the supply keep going up mm-hmm. Um, I have walked off that as more and more research I have done, read up on it. And uh, crypto was started as a peer-to-peer exchange. The more and more I see it is as a store of value, at least Bitcoin being the store of value, um, then peer-to-peer exchange because the unit of account doesn't really work that well. Mm -hmm. So if I say, hey, I bought this car for two bitcoins you're like when did you buy it like you don't really quite understand it the medium exchange not many people are taking bitcoin as of now i think it's going to get more adoption over time we don't know where we'll get to but i think again going back to the fiat currency it's much more predictable in the country and society you live in and it's you could talk about it, everybody would know what that means, the dollar, a peso, or euro. So the, anyhow, so crypto was, Bitcoin was created for peer-to-peer transactions, really working well, I feel like, in a store of value for people. 
but it's worth mentioning that it solves two big problems. Okay. So one of the problems is solve the double spending problem and by Satoshi Nakamoto, who discovered Bitcoin, put a bunch of technologies together. So before Bitcoin, just to explain to you what the double spending problem is. So let's say if I have a file on my computer that's worth $100, and it's $100 because there's only 1,000 of them, okay. right? And if I email it to you or airdrop it to you, you'll have a copy. Now there's 1,001 of them, right? So I can, in theory, send it to a bunch of people and this 1,000 copies could be 100,000, a million, billion, whatever, right? So you can just keep spending it. And that's been the problem historically for, how do you send something that's digital to somebody else without being able to send it to 10 other people? So Bitcoin really solved that. Okay. So the double spending problem. So just because of that, crypto could be, or Bitcoin in this case, could be money for the internet, where that person can't send it twice, only it could be sent one time. Okay. So that's one big problem it solves, which is really excites me about this technology. And the second thing that it solves is the problem of the middleman. So we talked in other episodes how yep. middlemen takes a cut, whether it's Visa, MasterCard, eBay, Amazon, <clears throat> whoever that would be, they take a percentage of the business cut that crypto, specifically smart contracts, can actually allow people to shrink the middleman's margin. I know it's happening quite a lot on the NFT, so that's, if you don't know, these are like you know, usually arts, <laughs> that's like digital art that you can identify using cryptography. You can keep it from, let's say, only 10,000 copies, and then you can exchange from peer to peer for a very small fee. Or say, if I have a physical art, I gotta use a dealer in between, and they will take a 10% cut of it. Still, you and I are doing the transaction. So I think the problem the middleman is gonna be a big one that crypto solves. Again, that's it's really built for the internet where people want to exchange peer-to-peer -peer something that this technology can do. So I think those are two really big things that crypto Huge. solves yeah. for people. Yeah. So where we're at today, how would you summarize a comparison between fiat and crypto? Okay. So this is basically what we've been talking about. So both are tools, fiat and crypto. Mm -hmm. And then I think they're both going to be here in the long run. Fiat is fiat based on competent government. It runs a complex economy. If they keep doing that, I think it's going to be around, right? So depending on how the inflation is managed, the people will keep using the fiat. Where it's managed well, that's where the money will go. So that's the fiat thing. Make sure they are actually controlling the inflation. And then the crypto, I think, it becomes a really good alternative. So if you're in Ukraine, for example, and all of a sudden the government needs to fund their war and they have to do some really, really outside the box measures, right? So they want to tax people at a really higher rate or 
They want to freeze your bank account or percentage of your bank account so they can actually fund this war, which let's just be honest, they need to or else they'll be taken over by Russia. So if you're a Ukrainian individual, you have the opportunity to actually buy some Bitcoin and store some value there. You might not be able to do a lot of medium exchange or use this unit of account, but you can actually store that value. If you ever leave Ukraine, you can go to U.S., Europe, anywhere. You can actually exchange that into the local currency. So I think things like that's going to be very interesting how this technology evolves into more and more adoption. Mm-hmm. Uh, so things like that happening in Ukraine, Argentina, Venezuela, all these countries, it's going to continue to happen. So I think crypto will take some market share. But again, we're pretty early in the in this space. I think it's a worth technology. It solves a lot of things that any previous technology couldn't solve. Right. So yeah, I think uh, uh, Bitcoin is going to be a really big and take a big chunk out of gold market. So take some market share. It already has art, real estate, all these things where people will just start using it as a store of value. Then you have then you have smart contracts. I think they're going to start taking some more and more. They already are from Visa, MasterCard, eBay's, Amazon's market share. So I think those are some of the things that would happen over time. We talked about earlier of adoption, and these things take a long time. It's a fairly new technology. It's very interesting. So yeah, anyhow, so, so that's how I would say in the future. I think will they both be around? Yes. They do different jobs, right. depending on what job you're trying to get done. Don't look at just individual only, look at the collective as well, because that is important to understand. Because the narrative really goes about the individual, not about the collective. And Yeah, it just makes so much sense to think of it as, I think there are people out there, including myself, that was like, I should put everything into cryptocurrency. But it's more of a... Fiat's going to be around for a while. Cryptocurrency, we believe, is going to be around for a while. It's a way to balance it. And that's the thought process of they both do different things. So let them be around and let them do what their roles are supposed to be within the economy. Yeah, it just, <clears throat> you want to understand, right? Like you're putting your life savings into an investment. You want to understand. Do you even understand it? So spend some time, 20, 30, 40 hours of your time saying, okay, is this technology worth putting money into? I think so. I have personal investment in it. Again, I wouldn't say let's put 100% into it. I think a lot of that philosophy is where it's individual, like it's about the individual, not the collective. I think the way society works is it goes both ways. The individual is protected and the collective is protected. So look at it in that sense as well and do your own research as we talked about it. I think we give you a lot of things to think about. There's a lot of books out there. There's a lot of good content out there, including this podcast, where you can actually understand this a little bit better. Absolutely. And for Fiat versus Crypto, that is the episode. So thank you, So Why Crypto community, for joining us for another edition of So Why Crypto. I got to ask you, Rashal. We talked about a lot of dense topics. Is there anything that you may have forgot or wanted to throw in there or anything that you're thinking of right now? 
No, just thank you for listening. We really appreciate listening to us. Reach out to us. Let us know if you have any questions we could cover in future episodes. Absolutely. Also, if you think, hey, want to fact check you on something, I will be happy to review anything. Absolutely. Yeah, there, there's no pride here. It's all education for us. So if you hear something and you're interested in throwing a comment, please. You can find us on So Why Crypto on Twitter, on our website, on YouTube. We'll, I monitor, Vashal monitors, we're looking at anything. So if you want to throw some information towards us, I have some questions, please, by all means. But thank you for joining us for another edition of So Why Crypto. Make sure you subscribe to our YouTube channel. And for myself, Quay and Vashal, thank you. Thank you so much. So why, so why crypto? So why crypto? So why crypto? So why crypto? Featuring Vishal and Quay.